We have one case this afternoon, number 22-145, NRA Palo Alto Networks, Inc., Mr. Allward-Driemeier. May it please the Court. I should mention that Judge Reina is participating by phone. Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. In Arthrex, the Supreme Court made clear that administrative patent judges are inferior officers who, quote, must be directed and supervised by a presidential appointee such as the director of PTO. Arthrex further clarified that while the president or his appointee may delegate their responsibilities, they, quote, cannot delegate the active obligation to supervise that is central to the accountability that is at the core of Article II. But the way I read the Supreme Court's decision in Arthrex, they repeatedly focus on the statutory provision which they held unconstitutional and suggest that if the board exercised delegated authority from the director, and they mentioned the institution context specifically, that seems to satisfy the Appointments Clause requirement. Well, Your Honor, it starts to satisfy it because that means that the power derives from the director. But the court specifically, in that passage I was just citing, and this is at 1978-79, says that the president has the responsibility under Article II and therefore, quote, cannot delegate the active obligation to supervise. And again, at page 1983, the court comes back to this and says that adequate supervision entails review of decisions issued by inferior officers. When the Supreme Court remanded in Arthrex, or when this court remanded in Mobility Works for an opportunity for Mobility to file a rehearing petition, I'm sure the court would have been shocked if the director's response would have been, don't worry, I'm not accepting any, even though I acknowledge I have the authority to do so. What about the Supreme Court's discussion of the Allapatt case, which seems to me to suggest that what went on in Allapatt complied with the Appointments Clause. And in Allapatt, our court was quite clear that the director didn't have the authority to change the board's decision, though he had certain other authority with respect to the board. Well, Your Honor, with due respect, in this instance, there is no indication that the director was exercising any authority. No, no, but this isn't different from Allapatt, is it really? It is, because we had, in 10 years' time, after the AIA, there was not a single instance, and the government was not able to cite one, in which the director actually took review of an institution decision. Well, that seems to have been true in Allapatt also, that the regulations didn't provide for director review, that the whole authority had been delegated to the board. Your Honor, while it may be true that there does not have to be, and we make clear that there does not have to be review in any individual case, there has to be that ability to do so. There has to be that active supervision that the Supreme Court referenced. And in 
Arthrex, when they're citing that, they're actually citing to free enterprise. So it's a principle that's already been stated in Supreme Court law, and that was citing back yet further to Justice Breyer's concurring opinion in Clinton v. Jones, which doesn't involve the the delegation, uh, you know, uh, by Congress at all. It talks only about the president's own responsibilities. And so what what. This and Judge Newman identified this issue in the in the Mobility Works decision, and the, the panel did not address it because they said it was for mobility to raise for the fir- in the first instance on remand before the director. But again, when mo- in mobility, this court, Your Honor, authored that opinion, said opportunity for mobility to file a request for rehearing. There had to be an opportunity to alert the director for what the reasons for rehearing was, even if the director had no obligation to undertake such review. The director's own action in the Open Sky case, since we filed the mandamus petition here, shows the director acknowledges that institution decisions... This was sui sponte review, Your Honor. Was that satisfied? Well, Your Honor, I think in light of what the Open Sky order says, which is that in that case, there had been a petition for rehearing before the board and or for review by the presidential opinion panel. And it's clear that the director was was observing those, paying attention to those, and deciding on that basis whether to conduct a review. When Palo Alto Networks was considering what to do to seek further review, the, the guidance that was given said that if you file for that kind of review before the board or before the POP, you cannot seek director review. And so if we had done so, we would not be able to make the argument we're making before Your Honor today because I think we would have been deemed to have waived that right. But if that is the way that the director is going to exercise that supervisory authority that is compelled by the Constitution, I think that would comply Certainly the Constitution does not spell out, and we're not asking the court to spell out, all of the the nuances of how it has to happen. But there has to be some active review. And I think the director... Just so I understand what it is you're looking for, if there was no policy in place that categorically refused uh, to consider uh, a denial of an institution by a director... And so then you filed your rehearing request to the director, and the director said, denied. Is that good enough? Your Honor, I think that we would have to live with that, because okay. we have no so no light. If, if the director just issued that kind of one-word denial every single time, every time she was requested to uh, review a petition denial, that would be okay? I, I think that we would have to accept, given that there is no obligation that there be uh, review, if the, the re- filing has been received and the director has decided not to exercise review, that is the, the supervision that is responsible. Because all Article 2 is about... I'm lost as to, in your, terms of your argument, what is the distinction between those two? Because at that point, the director owns the decision. Your Honor, because the director has said, denied. I'm and not going to review it. Why hasn't the director already owned the decision when the director declares uh, that she is delegating this particular statutory function to the board and then declares, whatever they do, I'm on the hook for. The buck stops with me. 
If they do some kind of shenanigans that's very embarrassing, I'll be the one that's politically accountable for it because I am the one that's responsible for having delegated that duty to the board. I'm glad that Your Honor asked that because I absolutely think that that would be a violation of Article 2 and be an abdication of the responsibility that Article 2 assigns first to the president. If I understand your argument then is any time a principal officer delegates one of her duties to a subordinate officer or employee, that director always has to leave open the opportunity to revisit the delegee's decision. Is that right? When the Supreme Court says that adequate supervision entails review of decisions issued by inferior officers, that's what it means. It doesn't mean, of course, that there has to be... If you're quoting from Arthrex, that was a different fact pattern than what we have here because there the board was completely insulated from any review by the director. Here we have the director specifically assigning the duty to the board. What I think is important is that we consider in the world after Arthrex that we know because the Supreme Court has said so that the director has the authority to review final written decisions. If the director were to announce a policy categorically, don't bother to file your petitions for review by director of final written decisions because I, a priori, in advance, validate every decision that the board may ever make even though I'm not looking at it. That would be an abdication of the Article 2 responsibility. The responsibility is to supervise. It's not just the big policy issues. The big policy issues, especially in final written decisions, are going to be reviewed by this court, which reviews law de novo. Fact matters too because this court is going to be bound as long as there's substantial evidence. It needs to be the director herself that personally considers the review. What if Director Vidal had a policy that said, I'm a very busy person, so it's going to be up to my chief of staff. I delegate the responsibility of considering any request for reconsideration of a petition denial to my chief of staff to decide. Would that be okay? I don't think that it would be okay if it was an absolute delegation. I think that there has to be reserved the power to do it herself. What we have here is evidence that, of course, after Palo Alto Networks... This is true of every function in duty. For example, patent examination. If a patent examiner issues a final rejection denying an application, should the applicant therefore be allowed to petition directly to the director for a request? Not directly to the director. There are avenues for review, though. What we're saying is that the director can't simply... In the instance that you started with, which is director issues denied, the presumption of regularity is that the director has reviewed it to the extent the director wanted to and is denied. But where the director has for 10 years never exercised such review, and then the first time that there is ever an articulation of a policy says, stay away. I don't want to hear it. I am not going to review those decisions. It basically tells the board members... We now have a situation in which the director will sui sponte, review these institutions, 
denials, right? And we understand that one way to raise the issues to her is to put it in a petition for board re-hearing or for POP review. And I think that that's fine, Your Honor, but we did not have the benefit of that. So in this case, we were to remand to have the director consider sua sponte review in accordance with the existing policy. That would satisfy the appointments clause problem? I think it would, Your Honor. In this instance, when we asked the director after the office said, nope, we will not accept for filing your petition for review, we said, well, can we go back and file it to the board? That would have set up this chain of events possibly in open sky. And we would have said, nope, you're done here. We didn't have an opportunity to file the petition for a re-hearing before the board that might have set this up. There's the internal review team that the new guidance refers to. Of course, that new guidance came out three days after our mandamus petition here. I think what's happened is that Palo Alto Networks has done the patent bar a service by identifying a problem and getting the director to adopt a policy by which she will exercise that authority. We know that Congress has gotten in the game, too, by suggesting that she needs to do that by regulation. But Palo Alto Networks never had that benefit. Counselor, this is Judge Arena. I find your argument very interesting, but I keep harking back to the decision of the Supreme Court in Arthrex where the court said, to be clear, the director need not review every decision of the PTAB, setting that aside. It goes on and says, what matters is that the director has the discretion to review decisions rendered by the APIs. It seems to me that there's no question here that the director has the discretion. The argument is exercise of that discretion. But the Supreme Court has made it clear that's not the point, that the point is whether the director has the discretion or not. In this case, it's clear that the director does have discretion. Well, Your Honor, to be clear, the first and only reference to that power came after Palo Alto Networks filed its mandamus petition in this court. There was never any suggestion that the director, and this director took office after he filed the mandamus petition. So it's clear, I'm not referring to her individually. But her predecessors gave no indication that they understood that this was an authority that they retained. And maybe that's because the statute, of course, had said that as to the final written decisions, which are even more important, perhaps, there was no director review. So maybe the director understood that once it had assigned that decision as well to the board, that that decision also was not subject to review. We don't know. The government's brief says, well, it's always been a power that was reserved. But there was no evidence of that. Ten years, no exercise of that authority. And the first written policy was, again, the stiff arm. Don't even bother to subject, to submit it. And a suggestion that if you filed a petition for rehearing before the board or you filed a petition for review by the POP, you were foregoing any right to direct review, which is what we wanted. And I just want to clarify, and I do want to reserve some time for rebuttal, but that clarifying factual errors can be as important as the big policy issues. As all of us know, whether we're parents or any other circumstance where we supervise, sometimes you have to correct the small errors so that the people understand that you're paying attention. This decision here, where they just switched the order of the references, they said that there was no reason to modify the secondary reference with the primary, was sloppiness. It was lack of care. The director should say, go back, do it again. 
Thank you. I guess first we're going to hear from Mr. Andre. May it please the court. Your Honor, I'll be arguing just one very simple issue, and that's the one of waiver or forfeiture. This is kind of different from Siena, isn't it, in the sense that the relief that's being requested is not to invalidate the decision by the board, but to add another layer of review, whereas in Siena the request was to invalidate the decision and start over. There is some factual difference, but there's also some similarities. Like in Siena, the petitioner in this case, they went to the district court and got the case stayed. So that's a very important fact here. They could have an alternative means to check the validity of these patents to the district court. They chose not to. Time and time and time again, they petitioned the patent office to attack Centripetal's patents. And time and time again, they've even misused that privilege as well. So what we're saying here is that they knowingly come to this court knowing they waived their very objection to the appointments clause that they have here. That waiver should not be forgiven. And I think that's really the crux of what I'm talking about here. They're not trying to undo what they sought. That's the distinction from Siena. They're happy to have the consequences of what they sought. They just want an additional level of review. Well, if they're happy to get the same result and just have a different review, that's a little bit of a form of substance, obviously. But that's not what they're asking for. They're asking for another bite of the apple. And that's what Palatine Network is doing time and time again. They have multiple petitions over and over again. It never ends. So what we're talking about here is in the instance where you choose to go to the PTAB instead of going to the district court, you shouldn't get more and more bites of the apple. That's just not fair to the patent owner and the innovative company. I know Mr. Saltzman has much more of the meat of this argument for the government. I'll let him take it from here unless you have any further questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Andre. Mr. Saltzman. Thank you, Your Honor, and may it please the Court. Joshua Saltzman on behalf of the Patent and Trademark Office. What about the forfeiture issue, which you didn't mention in your report? Yeah, we haven't raised a forfeiture defense, and we don't have a position on that here. Okay. Turning to the merits, though, I've already heard the Court anticipate several of the points I was planning on emphasizing during my argument. But there's one thing that hasn't come up yet that I do just want to make sure it gets properly framed, which is to remind the Court that we're here in a mandamus posture. And I think that's significant for two reasons. First of all, in Milan Labs, this Court recently emphasized that a party challenging a denial of institution is particularly unlikely to be able to carry the heavy burden of showing entitlement to mandamus relief. The second reason it's important is because under the mandamus standard, they're required to show clear and indisputable entitlement to relief. And therefore, while we think their Arthrex argument just fails on the merits, at a bare minimum, if this Court thinks that what they're asking for is an extension of Arthrex, this Court can just deny the petition for saying that, at a minimum, this case is not on all fours with Arthrex, which I think it plainly isn't. And therefore, there's no clear and indisputable right to relief. So your theory, if I understand it correctly, 
is if in Arthrus itself, after the remand from the Supreme Court to the PTO, the director had said, I'm not going to review any of these cases individually, but I'm going to have a blanket delegation of authority to the board both to make the original final written decision and to address the rehearing petition, that would not raise an appointments clause problem. Well, I think that follows from this court's recent decision in what I'll call Arthrex 2, the post-remand decision here, that it's delegable. But I think the current case is different. You don't need to agree with me on that, but yes. No, no, wait, wait, just so I'm clear. That is your position, that that wouldn't have been a proper outcome in Arthrex itself. I think once the statutory restraint, the source of the constitutional violation in Arthrex was a statute. And the reason why it's so significant that it was a statute is a statute ties the director. So the answer to my question is yes. Yes, I believe it is, because once the statute is removed, the director's hands aren't tied. The director bears accountability. Power and accountability go hand in hand. And once there's no statute interfering with the director's exercise of authority, if the director is tasking someone else with that authority, here, for example, the relevant regulation says that the board exercises the institution decision on behalf of the director. There's no doubt that especially when coupled with the underlying statutory language found in 35 U.S.C. 314, that the director is responsible for institution, that the public knows what political actor is accountable. What if, going back to something Mr. Hallward-Dreimeier brought up earlier, what if the director, Director Vidal, issued a blanket policy that said, yes, I have now the power and discretion to reconsider or to visit rehearings on final written decisions, but I'm telling you right now, I'm not accepting any. So don't send them to me. And you can try to send them to me, but I'm exercising my authority to refuse to even receive them. Would that be an appointments clause problem? Absolutely not. And I want to emphasize an important distinction because I do think Palo Alto conflates two distinct concepts. There's a difference between the director having authority over the decision and choosing to reserve it for exceptional cases and for sua sponte review, and the director choosing to accept briefing from parties disappointed by the results of a particular proceeding. I think it's completely fine for the director to say, I'm not particularly interested in reviewing petitions or filings. I have the authority. If the board does something that's bad enough that I don't want to be accountable for it, I will come in. But there's a very big difference under the appointments clause between saying the APJs need to have a boss, the director needs to be over them, and saying that the parties to proceedings before the board have a right of direct access to that boss or to take challenges up to the boss. And I think Arthrex says only that— Well, could the director be seen then as somehow insulating herself from the work of the board and never evaluating it? Like let's take away sua sponte revisiting. It's just never, ever the director is completely taking herself out of the equation, and so therefore it's always going to be these inferior officers that are wielding this executive power through final agency decisions. 
I don't think she has the ability to take herself out of it because the statute says she's on the hook. Now, it may be that she's going to look like an absentee landlord. She's going to look like she's abdicating her responsibility in some ways. And then the political power, the political checks can follow from that. But at the end of the day, as long as she has the power, which she plainly does, at that point, there's sufficient accountability under Arthrex, and particularly under that decision as recently construed by this court in Arthrex, too. Counselor, this is Judge Reyna. Taking Judge Chen's questions to you, how can you say then that under the scenario that Judge Chen painted, how can you say that the director is reviewing or has review authority over the decisions of the board if the director just flat out says, I'm not going to accept any applications for review, any petitions for review? So as I was saying, Your Honor, I think there's a difference between saying I'm not interested in receiving briefing and saying I don't have authority to review. As I think Palo Alto just emphasized. Let's stick with the former, not the latter. The director here has issued almost this type of blanket statement, right? Well, the statement of the agency is. The director says that she's not accepting any applications for review. Right. That's not an exercise of discretion. That's avoiding exercising discretion. It's a step before the director exercises any type of discretion. I don't agree with that, Your Honor, and I disagree in two ways. First of all, I want to emphasize that what the director has said, and this is at page 67 of the special appendix, is that the director is not interested in receiving petitions for rehearing or petitions for director review from parties, but the director retains and has always retained the authority to engage in sua sponte review. The second thing I would take issue with is the idea that it's not an exercise of discretion to announce a policy of how you're going to supervise your subordinates. She has the power, there's no doubt, under Section 314 to decide what institution decisions, what the form of review of those will be. The fact that she has chosen to exercise that discretion in a particular way, first through the promulgation of a regulation that delegates that authority to the board, and then through the announcement of guidance, giving the public notice of the circumstances under which she is likely to review or try to reverse those decisions, is all of that's discretionary and all of it are choices for which she can be held politically accountable. So Mr. Hallward-Drimeyer says he'd be satisfied if he had the opportunity to seek sua sponte review from the director. Is there an interest here in constitutional avoidance in simply remanding to give them the opportunity to seek what the PTO says is now available? I don't think you need to get to constitutional avoidance because we're here on mandamus. Because they can't show a clear and indisputable right under Arthrex, any ambiguity actually cuts against them, not in favor of a remand here, because of the mandamus standard. How does it work in other agencies when it comes to a principal officer by regulation or otherwise delegating principal office functions and duties to a subordinate? Is there always or typically an opportunity for review of the decisions made by delegates up back to the principal officer? 
So some of the schemes were predate Arthrex, but what I would emphasize is that in many schemes, there's no right of access to the principal officer. So the attorney general might bear ultimately responsibility for the God knows how many thousands of immigration decisions that are made by the Board of Immigration Appeals. Now, under Arthrex, maybe the attorney general needs to have the right to reach down and sua sponte flip a BIA decision of which the AI, the attorney general doesn't approve, or the Social Security Administration, which issues some like, something like 700,000 benefits determinations a year. The commissioner of Social Security does not have to individually review those cases, and parties who are disappointed by their benefits determinations don't have a right of access to the secretary. Is that All been, that matters is the power. You, you do cite two Labor Department cases in your brief at page 18. Yeah where the secretary said, I'm not going to review the board's determination. But is that true in the immigration context and the social security context, that there's an announcement that the attorney general or the secretary won't entertain a complaint about the way the case was decided? I can tell you, I have more direct experience litigating social security cases. I can absolutely tell the court that there is no process in place for review. There's a decision by an administrative law judge in social security. There's then an entity called the appeals council. And the decision of the appeals council is the final decision of the agency. And it's set out by regulation that that is the way the system is set up. And there's certainly no formalized process that would provide access to the commissioner of social security. There may be no formalized process, but there's also no announcement by the secretary that review won't be entertained, right? So again, there hasn't been an announcement here either that review won't be entertained. What there has been is an announcement that the director isn't interested in receiving briefing from the parties. But if there's been an announcement here, it's been a clarification that the director retains and has always retained the authority to engage in sua sponte review. Is the PTO considering more extensive director review under these circumstances? Not to my knowledge. There was a 28-J letter filed about proposed legislation, which could have an impact, but not. No, OK. All right. Any further questions? Judge Rayner, do you have anything more? No, I don't. Thank you. OK. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Your Honor. Just quickly, in Milan Labs, the court made clear that constitutional challenges were an exception to the general rule of not being able to seek mandamus of non-institution decisions. And here, we are raising a constitutional challenge. The suggestion that you should deny mandamus because there is no decision on all fours would mean that the law could never advance in this area. And that is certainly not the view the Supreme Court took in the Cheney case, in which it went beyond the very strict construction of those standards for mandamus. So this is an issue that the court should take up on mandamus. The suggestion that the director is reserving her authority for exceptional cases through sua sponte review is a recitation of a policy that was announced after our mandamus petition was filed in this case. Up until that time, there had never been any review by the director of an institution decision. And the stated policy was, don't bother me. Moreover, the stated policy was that if we had filed a petition for board rehearing or for pop review, we would have forgotten about the mandamus petition. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.
gone any right we had to direct a review. So we were put in an untenable, constitutionally untenable position. In terms of other situations, I think it is illustrative that when the Attorney General has regulations with respect to the special prosecutors that do suggest some constraint on the Attorney General's authority to supervise, the District Court of D.C. viewed those and said that those were problematic. The only thing that saved that from an appointments clause challenge, and this was the question whether they should treat the special prosecutor as a principal officer that would have to be appointed by the President, was the fact that the special prosecutor could be removed at will by the Attorney General. But the Director has no authority to remove the administrative patent judges at will. So that type of restraint on the presidential appointee's ability to review is problematic. And just quickly, Arthrex 2, the discussion there was about limitations of the Vacancy Act, a statute. The language in question said that the statute made the authority non-delegable or the regulation did. It's not the article to, the language that they're citing to does not address the article to problem we're addressing here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted. That concludes our session for this afternoon. All rise. The Honorable Court is adjourned until tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock a.m.